0: We sometimes have a conversation at home uh, about our our kind of upbringing and which side of the fence uh, we were on. If you were of a certain age, you will probably remember. For those of you who are younger, there was actually a time where there was only three TV. Well, there was a time when there were less than three TV channels, but there was a time when there were only three TV channels. And uh, you were pretty much defined by which TV channel of children's programs you tended to watch. You were either a BBC watcher or you were an ITV watcher. And if you were a BBC watcher, you watched Blue Peter. And if you were an ITV watcher, you watched Magpie. Or Tiswas or Swap Shop on a Saturday morning. That's the way things were. I remember as a child, I remember vividly, I knew that we were starting the journey to Christmas when the Blue Peter Advent candle making started. Fantastic. You would not get away with it today. Two wire coat hangers twisted together with a bit of tinsel wrapped around them and a candle on each end. It was amazing. Light a candle every week for Advent, four weeks to build up to Christmas. Some of you are looking at me like I am crazy, but that was Christmas. We cannot help but be shaped in our understanding of Christmas by the events and the experiences that have molded us in our understanding of Christmas. And culturally and societally, we cannot get away from the past 150 or so years of the shaping of the way we perceive Christmas to be. We cannot get away from the incredible impact of Victorian Christmas and particularly the impact of Dickens. Charles Dickens was probably one of the most significant writers about Christmas. Christmas, I believe, appears in the Pickwick Papers. It definitely is seen incredibly and powerfully in his Christmas Carol story, but four years earlier, he wrote the story of the goblins who stole a sexton. The storyline of that is virtually the storyline of a christmas carol charles dickens was obsessed with the celebration and the joy of christmas and and from that moment on and with the the monarchy at that time bringing was it prince albert was it brought in the first christmas tree and, and since then christmas has been synonymous with celebration and joy and in one sense there is nothing wrong with that There is a moment of joy. But on our journey for Christmas, I would want us not to be shaped by our history, not to be shaped whether we were BBC or ITV, not to be shaped whether we were Dickens, but shaped by what the Bible speaks to us about Christmas. I'm going to say something which might rock you. You might not particularly like this idea. But Christmas, Advent, is actually about violence, darkness, and hope. That's what Advent is actually about. Now, we love the hope bit. We love the Christmas celebration. And what we've done over the past 150 or so years, uh, and the church has gradually lost its full vision of what Advent truly is all about, for the main part, what we have done is we have extended and extended and extended that joy bit, that happiness bit, at the cost and the expense of violence and darkness. And you might say, well that's a good thing, isn't it? Isn't it great if we get rid of violence and darkness? The problem is this, unless we understand the violence and the darkness we can never truly understand the light and the hope we can't i want you to imagine christmas day every day that would lose any significance wouldn't it 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 would lose its value Gifts would lose their value if we received gifts every day. Huge celebratory meals would lose their value if we celebrated every day. It is precisely the contrast from the normal which makes celebrations a time of celebration. And likewise, unless we understand the true nature, the darkness and the violence that the Bible shows to us, we will lose sight completely of the hope that Advent communicates to us. And so, for that reason, I want us to take a journey way back and see Advent portrayed for us. That's what this text is actually all about. It is Advent portrayed for us, and we're going to see it in three ways. Reducing the violence of Advent limits our hope. Secondly, recognizing the violence of Advent places this moment in world history. And thirdly, embracing the violence of Advent anticipates a greater violent hope. That sounds all very confusing and complex, doesn't it? So let's just go through it bit by bit. First thing I want to do is in the middle of violence, I want to release hope. Let's release hope. We come to this text, Daniel chapter 2, and we find our character, Daniel, or as we see, Uh, Belteshazzar we see in verse 26 he's also called Belteshazzar we see uh, exiles from Jerusalem Daniel is one of them around about 600 years before Jesus in Babylon that's where they are they are in a place of exile but they are in a place of incredible significance Babylon the center of the greatest empire in the world at that moment in time we see Daniel dragged into the epicenter of power we see a moment of incredible significance because the king has a terrible dream you know the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has I would think Is a dream which is dreamt by so many who have reached the top and are filled with fear. Where else can we go? You don't actually have to be a multi billionaire to be in the place of Nebuchadnezzar. You can be in a place where you think, finally, finally it's all come together, finally I'm secure. Finally, everything is in place, and yet we all know that when we are at that moment of security and everything under control, we know that in the darkness of the night, our greatest fears run rampant in our minds and in our dreams. And that's what's going on for Nebuchadnezzar. He has a dream and the implication... The chapter is a fantastic chapter, chapter 2. Go home and read it, but it was so long we didn't have a chance to really read it. All It seems as though he's not quite clear what that dream was and definitely he doesn't understand. What does it mean? What am I, what's, what am I being told? And so he goes to the wisest people in Babylon at the time and he demands... I need to know, at pain of death, what this dream is all about. That's how serious he views this. There is immediate and intense mortal threat for the wisest in the land if they are not able to interpret the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and, it seems, even tell him what the dream was. Tell me, tell me what the dream was and tell me what it means. It's, do you have one of those moments? Do you have one of those moments? We call it when, our, when we break our dream. When somebody says something or something happens the next day and it all kind of comes rushing in. I think Nebuchadnezzar was looking for that moment. I want you to break my dream and tell me what it means. And if you don't, I am going to kill you. It seems that Arioch, maybe he is he's certainly well connected. He's in charge of the, uh, the exiles. It seems as though Arioch has relationships, friendships with the rich and the powerful and with the wise who are now under threat. And in verse 25 we see that uh, Arioch takes Daniel to the king. And he says to the king, Don't kill these men. I have found among the exiles from Judah someone, I I have found a man from among the exiles of Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. That is really smart. Really smart. I think Arioch probably had a hunch that maybe he could. But in a way, it didn't really matter because if he deflected the anger of Nebuchadnezzar towards Daniel who couldn't tell the king what his dream meant, then maybe others around him would live and Daniel would be sacrificed. And what we see is that Daniel goes to the king at the very peak of power in the world. Let's not kid ourselves that what we see in the language of Nebuchadnezzar is not unusual when we see power wielding its hand in this world. Tell me what it means or I'll kill you. Power, human progress, empires powerful structures they are not they are not by nature benevolent they are not by nature kind human progress is always achieved to some extent at the cost of others it always is human progress is always at the cost of others in one way or another and here we have Daniel, this exile being dragged in before the king, the most powerful man in the whole of the world at that moment in time and it is demanded that he tells the king the dream. What unfolds is an incredible image. Daniel tells him about his dream of a great statue made of gold and silver, bronze and iron, and iron and clay. And he makes it clear to Nebuchadnezzar you need to understand Nebuchadnezzar that what you see is a representation of power and empire. A great statue, something which the ancient world would immediately have embraced. You, you know, you. We we just need to do a quick Google on the ancient uh, artifacts that remain in our world. You go to the great pyramids and the sphinx, and you go to the remains of the hanging gardens of Babylon that have been discovered if they haven't been destroyed in recent recent conflicts. We see so much of the statements of power that the ancient world understood that what we see is Daniel communicating to Nebuchadnezzar, that dream that you dreamt was of an enormous statue. And it's not just about a statue. It is representative of power. Human flourishing at the expense of others. History shows that every time we progress, we always regress in another area. There is huge debate, and I'm not going to get into the debate at all, about power struggles in our country at the moment. But there's power struggles going on right now, isn't there? Different perspectives. We thought we would never, never face tension. Or rather we decided that we would never, never again face tension in Europe. Again, not after World War II. So let's unite. And now we find that we can't stay united. Our progress is always tarnished with stress and angst and fear, and worry about what might be, what might happen, what might explode onto our existence in the next short period of time. Can I ask you a question? Are you tired of it? I am. I'm tired. I have great I have great hope for humanity on the one hand and I have no hope for humanity on the other hand. I look around and everything from history tells me that as much as we progress we will never achieve the great hopes that we set ourselves. Because as we see every empire is corrupted, every power group has challenges and God's spokesman finds himself brought into and speaking at the very pinnacle of power of the world as it was known at that time. It is a place of profound violence. Tell me the answer or die. Second thing we see is that this moment, which reflects our Advent season, Mm -hmm. places ourselves in world history. Not just the history of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar at that absolute moment in time, but the way the dream is interpreted, it unfolds the next journey for humanity. Look at verse 37 as we see, the dream explained, your majesty, you're the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you roller over them all. You are that head of gold. Can you imagine Nebuchadnezzar at that moment in time? You've just described this incredible statue and the head, the glorious head made of gold. Daniel says, you're that head of gold. I think Nebuchadnezzar in that moment was really excited. You're that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others, just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom, yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay as the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. Nebuchadnezzar, you are that golden head. But, do you see what Daniel is saying? There are going to come more kingdoms. There are going to come more empires. That, that golden head which you might at this moment be so, so proud of is going to be replaced. It will not last. It will be replaced with silver, which will be replaced with bronze, which will be replaced with, with iron, and clay. And so in that moment by the, by the words of God through Daniel God speaks into that situation the next unfolding of human history. It is an incredible statement. The general consensus is this. That the gold is Babylon. That the silver Is the Medes and Persians, that the bronze is the Greeks, and the iron and clay is the Romans. A little bit of debate about what it means, whether the iron and clay was actually the Greeks and Romans, and whether the thighs were bronze, of bronze were the Persians. Do you know what? It doesn't matter in one sense, in one sense what Daniel is saying is this, kingdoms will rise and kingdoms will fall. Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom will fall. You think you are supreme, but you will not last. We owe so much to the empires of the past. Babylon, famous for its scientific progress do you know babylon gave us the 24 hour day babylon gave us 360 degrees to a circle things that we now still rely on in in understanding and explaining our world we we lean back to the babylonian empire and yet at the same time it was an empire known for violence and aggression do you see that do you see the Crisis. On the one hand, it brings great, on the other hand, it brings horror. Medo Persian. Absolute mathematic geniuses. They brought us currency and banking. The Greeks. Philosophy. Political structures and thinking. Society and citizenship. The Romans, political, political administration, governance and legal structures, architecture, the way to build. Look at what we lean back into which has been for human flourishing and yet at the same time every, every one of those empires were filled with corruption and self-centeredness and oppression and horror if you see the way Daniel is unfolding to Nebuchadnezzar, you might bring greatness and yet you bring horror. And that is why I think we feel tired. We feel tired because the next great thing, as great as it might be, brings difficulty and hardship in some way. And the great empires which thrive and flourish and seem as though they are invincible, eventually fall apart. What are the empires of today? What did the empires back then do? Empires back then changed our world, wherever we were within the empire. Rome, if you've been to Rome, beautiful city, incredible. Beautiful city when you look at what it must have been at that time. But Rome had a profound impact on Yorkshire. (laughs) Thousands of miles away. And yet it had a profound impact. What are our empires of today that have profound impacts on the way we live our day now? I think they're arguably digital, aren't they? Things that seem unstoppable, which are changing the way we live. Who would have thought that a grocer's shop or a hardware store of 50 or 60 years could ever be changed. How can you ever change? I think I can, I'm trying to remember what the one that I used to... It was a magical place for me as a kid, the hardware store in our village. The whole, the whole nine yards, wooden floor. As you walked in, it smelt of oil. It's brilliant. Smelt of oil, and if you ask for whatever it was, the most strange, obscure fitting and fixture, Mr. Mr. Nuttall, whatever his name is, he'd go upstairs and he'd bring it down, and I'd be able to fix my go-kart, or whatever it was that I was working on at the time. And it seemed, how could you ever replace this? How could you change that world? you create something called Amazon. And we change the world and places like that that were so seemingly invincible and necessary for our lives. Disappear. And power and wealth is redirected somewhere else. That's the empire of today. Do you know what this tells us? Those empires one day will fall apart. The invincible will fall apart one day. But what do empires do according to our history and what we see here? They oppress. They do not bring hope completely. They bring an ordering but they do not bring hope. But what we also see is that God is unfolding to Nebuchadnezzar precisely what happens over the next hundreds of years. Our God... Or the God of the Bible is a God who is engaged in the reality of this world. Do you think God has disappeared? Do you think God is now disconnected from the advances and the developments of the world that we live in? Unconcerned? Not at all. I guess Daniel might have thought as he was dragged into exile in Babylon where's our God now where is our God now because everything that I understood of God has been ripped apart and I'm dragged off now into Babylon and all of our hope has disappeared and yet God behind the scenes is working in his historical and eternal workshop to construct the events that will bring about the most dramatic event in history And what is that? Advent. And it's here. The season that we are celebrating now and entering into is spoken of in this chapter. Because we see a great violence in this chapter. Look at verse 31. Go back a bit. Here's our Babylon Christmas message. While you were watching, watching this great statue, while you were watching this statue, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. That is an incredible picture. I remember as a child, Jason and the Argonauts. Fantastic. Jason jumps off the ship and runs is it jason i think it's jason runs up behind the the great giant with the sword and shield and he he undoes a plug in the heel of the giant and and a whole load of water comes rushing out and the giant seems to just crumble and shatter and break off into pieces it's just that kind of image But it's not breaking open and undoing and letting water pour out. It's a rock not cut by human hands which breaks away and smashes the feet. And what Daniel is saying, every empire which rests on the previous, which rests on the previous, will be shattered by a rock which is not cut by human hands. Do you see the contrast that Daniel is making? We have a statue which is quite clearly cut by human hands. It is an idol. It is representative of everything that humanity has achieved. And it is smashed by a stone that is cut and not by human hands. Something outside of human power and authority breaks in and crushes and destroys every power of this earth that is the violence of christmas that's what jesus is he is the rock he is the rock not cut from human hands He is the rock that smashes into the feet. And the power that seemed to be overwhelming becomes like dust. Paul puts it like this to the Galatians. In chapter 4 and verse 4 he says this, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman born under the law God sent his son not formed by human hands yes in our world but not formed by human hands who broke in and smashed the kingdom And every previous kingdom that was represented in that statue, every human power which is represented in that statue, comes crashing down because of a rock that breaks away. And then becomes a great mountain. And replaces every kingdom. That's the violence of Christmas. That's the violence of the Advent season. The violence which says this, that God has purposed to break the oppressive violence of every empire that is represented in this world and He will smash that power by the power of Jesus. He will smash that power because He is a judging God. He is a God who will judge oppression. He, was a, he is a God who will judge those who oppress the others. Those who built their own human image at the expense of the worship of God. Those who will promote themselves rather than the God who has made them. That's the violence of Christmas. Verse 44. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Nor will, it, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. What an incredible statement that God makes to King Nebuchadnezzar hundreds of years before Jesus smashes the Roman Empire and brings to about a kingdom which will never be replaced. Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15 says this. It kind of looks back to the moment of Jesus in the face of all of the empires that have played their part in the history of the world. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Messiah. Do you see what the the statement of Christmas is? Christmas is all about a new kingdom, and the smashing of every human kingdom and the bringing about of the kingdom of our Lord and of His Messiah, and He will reign forever and ever. That is the best news that we can ever hear. Because no power and no authority made by human hands can ever be truly kind and benevolent and just. It cannot be. And yet, the kingdom of Jesus can be and must be. Let me talk as we close about that violence. You see, the violence that we see portrayed as that rock smashes into the kingdom at the bottom of the feet. It's not a, king, it's not a violence which comes about by some powerful, mighty interception. Or at least it doesn't seem so. It is the violence of the father who determines to crush his own son. The violence of the father who determines to crush his own son. You see, the purpose of the rock being broken away and bringing violence to every empire was so that justice would be done and judgment would be made. Somebody has to be judged. And God says, for that to occur and for me to be grace-filled, it will be my Son. And Isaiah chapter 53, written not far from this kind of time, says this, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes His life an offering for sin, He will see His offspring and prolong His days and the will of the Lord will prosper in His hands. Do you see how this all ties together? A rock which becomes the violent crushing of empires and yet becomes crushed itself, yet remarkably becomes a great mountain which replaces every other kingdom. And if we believe in Jesus, we are part of that kingdom. An irreplaceable kingdom. A kingdom that cannot be destroyed. An eternal kingdom. A kingdom which is ruled with benevolence and kindness and justice and mercy and goodness. And that, that is the offering of Advent. Do you know, I wonder whether we hear that offer one of the most remarkable things that we see in this section of the bible is that nebuchadnezzar in chapter two receives this message from daniel about how the next hundreds of years are going to unfold from a God who speaks about his dream in a remarkable way. And at the end of the chapter, he speaks so wonderfully. And his words overflow with gratitude to this God. And in chapter 3, he builds a statue to be worshipped. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't that incredible, the way that story unfolds? That the book of Daniel determines for Nebuchadnezzar to see the glory of God and then to work and to build a statue exactly like the statue in chapter 2 that is crushed. It's as though he kind of heard but did not heed. I pray... That during this Advent time, every one of us will not just hear, but we will heed the violent hope of Advent.